You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. We're instructed in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, to live peaceably with all. We're not to be getting into physical fights with people over doctrinal disagreements. No, Paul says, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with people. Jude here is talking primarily about countering the errors, the misconceptions, and false teachings about God, not with fists and guns, but with truth. With truth. God doesn't want us sitting on the sidelines while the truth is being maligned and attacked. We are too, as God's people, as ambassadors of Christ, to lovingly put up a fight. How so? By speaking the truth. By speaking the truth. By answering people's questions about God. Answering their objections to Jesus. Responding to their criticisms about the Bible. But that's not always easy to do, is it? Well, to help us be a little bit better equipped to answer some of these kinds of objections about slavery in the Bible and genocide and homosexuality, in this second session, I want to offer some concise responses to several of the popular objections that Christians are hearing today. The first objection I'd like to address concerns the topic of slavery in the Bible. It's not uncommon to hear people say that the Bible condones slavery and that only evil, selfish men would ever concoct a book like that. How might we respond to that? Well, when someone brings this up with me, I like to point out that slavery was never part of God's original plan for humanity, and it wouldn't exist if it weren't for mankind's sin. The Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself in both the Old and New Testaments. We're also instructed to regard one another as more important than ourselves. Well, how could slavery ever flourish if we were all loving and treating one another that way? A loving person doesn't kidnap people, lock them up, and force them to work without pay. That's terribly cruel and evil. And the biblical authors realize that kidnapping humans is a sin that carried the death penalty in the Old Testament. For example, Exodus 21, verse 16 says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. There would probably be a lot fewer abductions today if kidnappers were swiftly tried and when found guilty, put to death. But of course, we've done away with the death penalty in many states in our country. Um, we've demoted kidnapping from a capital offense to something, you know, more like a felony or whatever. And then we wonder why the sex slave trade and all of that's out of control in our country. Another verse that made it clear kidnapping people and forcing them to be slaves is wrong is found in Deuteronomy 24, verse 7. 
Notice this, it says, if anyone kidnaps a fellow Israelite and treats him as a slave or sells him, the kidnapper must die. In this way, you will purge the evil from among you. So the Old Testament made it clear these activities were wrong. What about the New Testament, though? Does it take a softer stand on slavery? No. In the New Testament, enslavers, men-stealers, or slave traders, depending on your translation, are condemned alongside murderers in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. You can look it up sometime. So then, why do some people believe the Bible endorses slavery? Well, I think it's because the Bible does have a handful of verses instructing people on how they were to treat their servants. In biblical times, people could sell themselves to be servants to pay off debts. And the practice was very common. It was illegal for you to sell someone else. That's a death penalty sin. But if you were in great debt to somebody, you could sell yourself to that person for a time to pay down your debts. This is discussed in Leviticus chapter 25. And so for those servants' sakes... God gave the Israelites instructions regarding the treatment of those persons. The instructions were actually given to protect and help the servants, not harm them or keep them down. Paul summarized the Bible's instructions regarding these servants with these words in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. He said, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The Bible never encouraged or endorsed the horrific kind of slavery that involved kidnapping, selling, and mistreating humans. Well, the skeptic says, the God of the Old Testament commanded genocide, the wiping out of the Canaanite people on the book of Joshua. A loving God would never command such a thing. When someone brings this up with you, you might ask the person this question, have you read the Old Testament passages regarding the Canaanites? Often they haven't. They've just heard about the supposed genocide. If they do say they've read the book of Joshua, you might ask this question, do you recall what the Canaanite people were doing that brought God's judgment on them? I can assure you of this, most people will not be able to speak to that with any confidence because they haven't read the book of Joshua, at least any time recently. So then you might just lovingly, humbly bring the person up to speed a bit on the ancient Canaanites. The Bible tells us that the Canaanites were an exceedingly wicked people who were sacrificing their children by fire to their god, Molech. The Bible tells us that they were also committing incest with their children and adultery and polygamy and bestiality, witchcraft, and a variety of other abominable customs. The Canaanites have become a dangerous, cancerous threat, not only to their posterity and their neighbors, but to the Israelites. And so God determined that the Canaanites' time on his planet was up. 
and he sent in the Israelite military force to put a stop to the wickedness. Just as he would, centuries later, bring in the Assyrian military and then the Babylonian military to put a stop to the wickedness when the Jews began engaging in the same kinds of activities. God is not one to show partiality, Peter said in Acts chapter 10. Friends, as you know, God created the earth and all of his inhabitants. It's his planet. And so he has the right to do whatever he deems best with his creation. All of life belongs to him. The Canaanites have become too dangerous, too wicked. And their time was up and God brought judgment down upon them. Think back with me to World War II. Most of us believe that the Allied powers, which included the USA, had the right and even God's approval to go to war against Nazi Germany and Japan to stop the great evils they were committing. When President Trump came into office in 2017, he authorized our military to put a stop to the wickedness in Iraq with a group called ISIS. Remember them? Remember some of the awful things they were doing? Were you in approval of our president's decision? I think most Americans were, regardless of where they're at politically. Well, this raises a question. If human governments, under the right circumstances, have the right to send in a military force to put a stop to evildoers, doesn't God have the right? Surely he does. If our non-Christian friends who are critical of the Bible today had been alive at the time of Joshua and, and were aware of the great atrocities going on in the land of Canaan, I think many of them would have been in favor of God's intervention. I do find it a bit odd that atheists today commonly say if God exists, he should intervene and put a stop to evil and suffering. In the book of Joshua, we have an example of God putting a stop to some of the evil, and atheists say loving God would never do that. I don't know. It seems to me that no matter what God does, people who want nothing to do with him find fault. Well, the skeptic says, surely God doesn't even exist. If he did, he'd just appear to us in a public setting and prove it to the world. People who raise this objection overlook the fact that God has already done this when he came to the earth in the person of Jesus. Jesus raised the dead, healed cripples, opened the eyes of the blind, proved he was God in the flesh. And what happened? Did everyone believe in him? No, they led him away and nailed him to a cross. One of the reasons God doesn't appear to people today is because he knows that wouldn't change their hearts. And God knows that he's already provided enough evidence for his existence for those who truly want to know him. Psalm 19 talks about this. Romans chapter 1 mentions this as, as well as Acts chapter 14. What evidence is there for God, someone might ask? Well, how about the fine-tuning of the universe? Or the mind-boggling complexity of living organisms or the information we've discovered encoded into DNA? Or hundreds of fulfilled prophecies in the Bible or the historical evidence for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection just for starters? 
I agree with Norman Geisler, a tremendous Bible scholar who went home to be with the Lord a couple years ago. He wrote this. He said, God has provided enough evidence in this life to convince anyone willing to believe. Yet he has also left some ambiguity so as not to compel the unwilling. In this way, God gives us the opportunity to either love him or to reject him without violating our freedom, end quote. I so agree with that. I also concur with J.P. Moreland, a professor at Biola, who said this, something similar. He said, God maintains a delicate balance between keeping his existence sufficiently evident so people will know he's there and yet hiding his presence enough so that people who want to choose to ignore him can do it. This way, their choice of destiny is really free. I love that. God is, God is so wise. There's just, it's the, the balance of evidence and hiddenness is just perfect. There's enough evidence out there for anyone who truly wants to know him, and yet he's hidden enough so that if you want to hate him and have nothing to do with him, you can freely go your way. Well, the skeptic says, I, I contend that you Christians are actually atheists. You don't believe in Zeus or Thor, and neither do I. I just take it one deity further. I don't believe in your God either. In his best-selling book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins, the well-known atheist, encouraged his readers to use this objection with Christians. And so it has become quite popular. If someone tries this kind of reasoning with you, you might just pull out your phone and look up the word atheist for them in a dictionary app and have your friend read it. An atheist is someone who doesn't believe in the existence of any God. Christians do believe God exists, so Christians are not atheists in the slightest degree. Now, I understand why people don't believe in Zeus or Thor. There's no good evidence that either one of them ever existed. Uh, but more than 2 billion people today believe in the existence of the God of the Bible. Why is that? Well, because there's good intellectually satisfying evidence that the God of the Bible truly does exist. Well, then why are there so many atheists? Well, actually, according to a 2019 Pew Research Center survey, atheists make up only 4% of the U.S. population, agnostics 5%. Most people believe God exists. I agree with that well-known British preacher, Charles Spurgeon, as to why most atheists have rejected God. Spurgeon said, I am persuaded that men think there is no God because they wish there were none. They find it hard to believe in God and to go on in sin, so they try to get an easy conscience by denying His existence. That is often what's going on with people who've rejected God. They find it hard to believe in God and to go on in sin. So they try to get an easy conscience by denying his existence. Well, Charlie, even if God did exist, the Bible was written by men. 
It's not trustworthy. I'm a bit astounded how often this comes up in conversations with people. They think that they can just get the Bible out of the conversation by pointing out to me that it was written by men. Like I didn't know that. Like most Christians don't know that. No, we know that, but we believe it was men who were guided by God as they pinned down its words. But when someone brings this up with me, I like to lovingly point out to them that their conclusion does not follow logically from their premise. If what men write is not trustworthy, we'd have to throw out encyclopedias, dictionaries, automobile manuals, everything the IRS sends us. <laughs> Written by men. Throw it out. Can't trust it. Men are capable of communicating truthfully, especially when they have God's help, as the biblical authors did. Many who think that the Bible is just a compilation of folklore and legend overlook the fact that there's a wealth of evidence for its reliability. I'm thinking here about hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, thousands of archaeological discoveries, its incredible internal harmony, historical confirmation we've unearthed in the ancient records of the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Romans, different scientific discoveries that have validated dozens of ancient details in the Bible. Uh, the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls back in 1947, the writings of Flavius Josephus, and on and on we could go. I did a whole presentation on these evidences, I think the last time I was here, so we're not going to do a deep dive into those here today. If you're unfamiliar with those kinds of evidences for the Bible, um, I, I would recommend one of my books. I think I'm going to put it on the screen here after this next objection, though. So let me go on to this next one. People say, well, Charlie, after the Roman emperor, Constantine became a Christian. In 8312, the Roman Empire took control of the Bible and tampered with its contents to better control the people. There was a fictional novel that came out all the way back in 2003 called The Da Vinci Code. Anybody remember The Da Vinci Code? It popularized this objection on the screen. Well, the claim is totally fabricated. There's no evidence to support it. If someone tells you that the Roman Empire tampered with the contents of the Bible, you might ask the person this question, how did you come to that conclusion? What evidence led you in that direction? If you'll ask the person that, you'll probably get a blank stare back. Why is that? Because there isn't a shred of evidence that the Roman Empire tampered with any books of the Bible. And the ancient handwritten manuscript copies of the Bible that predate the time of Constantine prove this to be the case. What do I mean? Well, we know what the Bible said before Constantine was even born around A.D. 280. And when we compare the Bible we have and use today to those ancient manuscript copies of the Bible, we see that it says the same thing it said all the way back in the first, second, and third centuries. If you could use some additional help defending the trustworthiness of the Bible, those kinds of things I just shared with you, and those last two objections can be uh, found in those two books out at my book table if you're interested. All right, moving along. Another objection I've been hearing more lately has to do with the size of the universe. 
Atheists say that the universe is so vast, it's foolish to think a God built a universe billions of light years across just to have a personal relationship with you. In other words, it's absurd to think that God would create all these other galaxies and stars and planets if the focus of his love was really just right here on our tiny planet. Well, in response to that, I would know that the enormity of something has absolutely no bearing on whether or not God exists, for God could have several good reasons for creating the universe the way he did, including the knowledge that his creatures would find a sky full of stars quite beautiful. That could be sufficient reason alone. God just thought, you know what? I want people to look up at the stars and be blown away. And when they send the web telescope out and all, you know, and I want them to still be blown away, even when they think they've gotten out further. That there's a whole bunch of more stuff way past where they even thought the universe might have ended. In reality, the enormity of the universe proves to be more of a problem for the atheistic viewpoint. Why is that? Well, the world's leading atheistic authors and philosophers believe every star, planet, and galaxy in the cosmos sprang into existence from what Richard Dawkins and Stephen Hawking said was literally nothing. I have quotes on my computer of them saying that. That the universe sprang into existence from nothing. Friend, that requires an enormous amount of faith. For we know from experience that nothing cannot do anything let alone turn itself into billions of planets and stars. So the enormity of the universe turns out to be more of a problem for the atheist. Well, it's a fact that humans are the product of evolution. Of course, when it comes to the evolution of humans, atheists commonly tell us that this is settled science and a proven fact. Well, this is certainly not the case. There are insurmountable problems with the theory of evolution. I can't get into all of them in this talk, but one, one fatal blow to the theory of evolution that I think all Christians would be wise to become more familiar with has to do with the fossil record. The fossil record is on our side. If evolution really is the explanation for all of life, the fossil record should show continuous and gradual changes from the bottom layer to the top layers, but it doesn't. Nearly all groups of animals appear in the fossil record suddenly, simultaneously, fully developed, and with absolutely no hint that they evolved from anything else. Those facts are devastating to the theory of human evolution. The fossil record is actually evidence for a global flood as recorded in the book of Genesis, not evolution. And the so-called ape-men fossils that have tried to be passed off to the public over the years in support of evolution have again and again been disproved or turned out to be an embarrassment to evolutionists. Let me walk you through a few of these. How about Piltdown Man? In the village of Piltdown, England, an amateur paleontologist found part of a human skull and part of an ape-like lower jaw with two teeth. Scientists hailed the discovery as a major missing evolutionary link between apes and humans. For 40 years, 
It was taught in schools as proof of human evolution until it was finally exposed as a colossal hoax. Forty years after the bones were put forth as evidence for human evolution, a team of scientists at the University of Oxford proved that the Piltdown skull belonged to a modern human and the jaw fragment belonged to a modern orangutan. It was also discovered that the jaw had been chemically treated to make it look like a fossil and its teeth had been deliberately filed down to make them look human. What a joke. Sorry, kids. 40 years in the schools and the textbooks as proof of evolution. But it was a forgery. What about Neanderthal man? I'm sure you've heard about him. School children were again taught for decades that Neanderthal man was proof of human evolution. But now, with the help of DNA technology, we've learned that Neanderthals were just humans, not ape men at all, or even ancestors of modern humans, just humans. How about Nebraska man? Nebraska man, as depicted in this artistic propaganda, was based off a discovery of a single tooth in Nebraska. You'd think they unearthed the whole village. You open up the textbook or you see the display at the museum with that kind of artwork and you think, wow, they must have discovered tools and like their village and other people. No, just one tooth. Pretty amazing what they can come up with based on one tooth. Well, scientists sought to convince the public that this, again, was proof of human evolution until it was later proved to be the tooth of a pig. What about Lucy? Unearthed in Ethiopia, a collection of fossilized bones was boldly proclaimed as the ancestor of all humanity in newspapers, textbooks, television shows, museums. But evolutionary researchers have more recently concluded that she should no longer be considered a direct ancestor of humans. Surprise, surprise. What about Ida? The press hailed the fossilized remains named Ida a few years ago as the missing link in human evolution and the eighth wonder of the world. Always a big, grandiose claim. But Ida was more recently and always more quietly reclassified as a small-tailed extinct primate and ancestor, not of humans at all, but lemurs. Oops. Friends, a fossil record has been and always will be an embarrassment to the theory of human evolution, and we know why. Humans are not the product of millions of years of mutations and evolution. You were created by God. Your human body with its 206 bones, more than 600 muscles, and a heart that beats more than 100,000 times a day as it pumps about 75 gallons of blood an hour through more than 60,000 miles of veins, arteries, and capillaries in your body shouts design from top to bottom. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by a loving creator. What a blessing to know that. Well, Charlie, Jesus said to love people, even your enemies. In Matthew chapter 5, Christians' rejection of homosexuals is downright hateful. Well, I think it's important to point out to people who think that we hate homosexuals that we certainly do not. A lot of us have a friend or a family member or a neighbor, a coworker who identifies as such. 
And we love these people. The Christian view towards same-gender sexual behavior should not be viewed or understood to mean that Christians reject or hate the persons engaging in that behavior. My wife, Anastasia, and I have been married for 24 years. We have five kids. There's a picture of my family there on the screen. And we view some of our kids' activities unfavorably at times. And I'll have to tell my son or my daughter, what you're doing right now is sinful. What you're doing right now is not pleasing to the Lord. What you're doing right now is not the way you should be treating your sibling, okay? Question for you. Does that mean I hate my kids? Of course not. I tell them that because I love them, and I want to see them live a life that God can bless. I want to see them be fruitful and kind and bring glory to God and to be a blessing to other people. I tell them that because I love them. Disagreeing with a person over an activity does not equal hatred. People in our culture want you to think that. If you disagree with the choices this person has made, then you're a bigot. You're hateful. No, that's ridiculous. We distinguish between the person and the practice. It's only same gender sexual activity we're opposed to, not the persons engaging in that activity. We're also opposed to fornication and adultery. Does that mean that we hate all those people too? Of course not. We love these people, we just can't endorse the activity that they're engaging in. And that's the same when it comes to our friends and family members who would engage in same-gender sexual activity. We can't approve of the activity, but we love the people. Well, Charlie, Jesus never said a word about same-gender sexual activity. If it was sinful or important to God, he surely would have addressed it. Well, there are some problems with this conclusion. First, the Gospels don't record any specific instruction of Jesus on a lot of things. We know to be wrong. Bestiality, rape, and incest, for example. Jesus may have talked about those activities. The Gospels don't record for us every single thing he ever said. But we don't take the lack of recorded instruction on these activities to mean that they must be okay, for they are condemned elsewhere in the Bible. Secondly, Jesus affirmed the authority and trustworthiness of the Old Testament Scriptures where homosexual activity is clearly condemned. Thirdly, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus explicitly reaffirmed the Genesis account of marriage that describes marriage as the one flesh union of one man and one woman. And fourthly, Jesus condemned the sin of pornea, a Greek word that encompassed every kind of sexual sin in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19 and elsewhere. So this objection that Jesus never talked about homosexuality falters as a means of justifying that activity. Well, Charlie, the Bible is oppressive and harmful to women. If someone tells you this, you might ask the person this question, have you studied the Bible? And again, I would encourage you to watch your tone. Okay, we're not, have you ever even read the Bible? 
No, but just, this is a genuine question. Have you read the Bible? If they say they've read the Bible and they've come to that conclusion from firsthand interaction with the Bible, I like to follow up with this question. What passages did you find most oppressive? Let's talk about them. I've been reading and studying the Bible for 30 years or so, and I've come to the conclusion that the God of the Bible loves and cherishes women. Husbands, that's a good place to say amen right there. Amen, right? (laughs) But who cares what I think? Millions of women who read the Bible on a daily basis have come to the conclusion that God loves and cherishes women. They've understood that the Bible says men and women are both made in the image of God and are equally valuable and important to God. They've read Paul's instructions for husbands to love their wives, even as Jesus loves them and was willing to lay down his life on the cross for their sins. They've read the passages where men are told to do nothing from selfishness and to even consider women to be more important than themselves. They've read about the wonderful friendships Jesus had with women like Mary and Martha and how he healed several women. They've read about women like Ruth, Deborah, Priscilla, and others who are portrayed in the Bible in a wonderful light, and they've understood that the Bible condemns activities that hurt women, like physical and emotional abuse, adultery, abandoning one's wife, and rape. If people would follow the teachings of Jesus more today, the world would be a much better place for women. You can be sure of that. This next objection has to do with wars. Suffering. Atheists and skeptics commonly say that religions, Christianity included, are responsible for most of the world's wars, suffering, and atrocities. Unfortunately, religious terrorists, greedy televangelists, child molesting priests, and others have done things that are terribly hurtful to people. But there are two things I think critics of Christianity overlook when they raise this particular objection. First, Jesus and his teachings are not to blame for the evils people commit. Anything evil or sinful a person does goes against Jesus' instructions. Jesus taught us to love people and to treat others the way we would like to be treated. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, he said, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. In other words, if you want people to be friendly and kind and forgiving with you, well, Jesus would say, you be friendly and kind and forgiving with them. This is commonly called the golden rule. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Jesus said, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Imagine how different the world would be if more people followed those instructions there just in those two verses. So while religious people have caused some suffering, let's not lay any of the blame for the world's evils at Jesus' feet. A second thing commonly overlooked when people blame the world's suffering on religious people is this. Atheists and non-religious people have caused a lot of suffering as well. Richard Dawkins never points that out in his books. 
Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, and Mao Zedong come to mind. They murdered as many as 100 million people in just a few decades of the 20th century. That's far more than those who were put to death by theists of any stripe over the past five centuries. So it just isn't true that religions are responsible for most of the world's wars and suffering. All right, allow me to respond to one last objection in this session. If you're out sharing the gospel with people, it's not uncommon to hear someone say, you should stop trying to force your beliefs on people. Well, I think it's probably pretty rare that Christians are out trying to force people to believe. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the grave three days later, he told his followers to share the good news with the whole world. So that's really all we're trying to do. We're not trying to force people to believe. We're simply explaining God's gracious offer of forgiveness and everlasting life to people. We believe that it's news that's too good to keep to ourselves. If someone had a cure for a deadly disease and kept it to himself, people would consider it a crime, wouldn't they? Well, the good news about Jesus is better than the cure for the deadliest disease. That's why we're trying to share the gospel. Because of Jesus' death and your place for your sins, God is now offering forgiveness of all your sins and everlasting life as a free gift to any and all who will repent and place their faith in Jesus. What a wonderful message God has given the church to share with the world. Let's not be ashamed of that glorious good news. May God embolden us to get the gospel out and when necessary to contend for the faith as we're told to do in the book of Jude. May God help us. Amen.